Welcome to another episode of the White Collar Tradie Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Zebranik. Join me as I chat with some of the most interesting, inspirational and successful people I've been fortunate enough to meet throughout my life and through my business journey. Throughout these conversations, we'll dive into the mindset of our guests and uncover some of the tips, tools and strategies they've implemented in their business and their life that has helped shape their success and make them the all-round incredible humans they are. Please enjoy. All right, man. I'm just going to go. Let's go. All right, let's go. All right, my guest today on the White Collar Trading Podcast is Matt King. Matt is the Managing Director of ERPS. Now, is it ERPS? It's URPS. Mm. Yeah, you got that right. Okay, yeah. URPS. Can I say ERPS or should I say You can URPS? say ERPS. We don't right. mind. Yeah. And was recently announced as one of InDaily's 40 Under 40 Award winners. I, I, I thought you'd like me to mention that. You happy with that? I didn't think you knew that, but I'm glad that you mentioned it now, <laughs> just so the world knows again. Thank you. So what does is, what is URPS stand for, just quickly? Urban and Regional Planning Solutions. Solutions. Okay, yeah. I wasn't sure if it was services or solutions. Thank you. It was too long. We yeah. had to make it shorter. So when you talk to people, do you say, I work, you know, I'm the managing director of URPS, or do you... URPS. Uh, okay. You, yep. All right, I'll call it URPS. Yep. Mate, I think just for a bit of context, can we start from the roughly the start because I'd like to just speak about maybe your early career and then that move that we spoke about when we had a coffee when you did that sort of I guess the big move from the government yep. into the private sector yeah you let us know like a bit about your background so I started working um in 2006 full-time after um studying planning at UniSA mm-hmm. and um I worked at the city of Burnside which had a pretty good reputation, I think, internally, but exter- externally, Burnside Council had a, a not a great reputation um, because of the council mm. and the way that some of the councillors had behaved publicly, I think. Um, but internally, the culture was great working there and um, learned a lot about planning quickly. There's a lot of litigation happening between... I've used that word early. Yep. Um, between landowners and I got exposed to lots of challenging planning issues and development issues early in my career. So it's a good a good learning ground. Mm. Um, but I always had an appetite to get into business. My dad had sort of been involved in business and I'd been around small business from a young age. So I was keen to get into business and then I got an opportunity to go and work at a, a small private firm uh, 2008, I mm-hmm. think. And I worked there for about four and a half years and then we merged with URPS. So I got, I got consumed by this other firm. Luckily, I knew, I knew of them. I knew one of the directors there and I liked him. So the relationship was good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a really good fit. You know, we kind of complimented my old firm and the group that came over complimented uh, the URPS crew and it was a, it was a really good fit. So... Um, you know, the last 10 years there has been great for us. Yep. So um, you worked in the government sector for only two years, 2006 yeah. to 2008. Yeah. So what's the... When people move from the public sector into the private sector like you did, what are the main differences, And I guess, and did anything take you by surprise? Um, I, think the, I think the biggest adjustment for me was the high degree of accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess you can, I guess when you're in a public environment, um, you're not, uh, there's different levels of accountability, but you don't have clients paying for your time. So mm. the quality of your work gets, I think when people are paying 
an hourly rate for your work, the quality has to be exceptional always. There's, there's minimal margin for error. And, you know, people want things done when you say you're going to do them. Mm-hmm. I, think in, I think in government world, um, I, I think there, there can be a tendency to kind of, uh, and there's some really good people in government, but there can be a tendency to kind of duck and weave a little bit. So that accountability in private practice was the biggest difference. And the consistency in terms of quality of work. My old bosses, they had minimal, I think, tolerance for poor work. And that was hard early Mm. because my work was very average. And I had to grow up and I had to deal with getting feedback that I didn't want to hear. I think I knew I needed to hear it. But when people tell you that your work isn't any good Mm. and you're young and you're sensitive, it's hard. So I think it that teaches you to grow up really quickly mm-hmm. um, and that sort of made me stronger. So I think being, being exposed to that was good um, and I think, I, think in, I think in private practice as well, you know, the, the management side of things is different. I think, people, um, I think people have to be honest with their staff, mm. you know. I think, um, and I think that's a good thing. So I enjoyed the change even though it was hard. Yeah, I would. I don't regret it. So, what what did you learn? I guess from because I'm well, next. I'm going to touch on you, you know, moving through URPS. But when you spoke about giving, you know, it hurt you to get some of that feedback. What did you learn from that, and how do you implement that now with your staff? Like, you know, do you think there's a better, better or best way to give feedback that you've learnt from um, those harsh realities? I think how you, how you deliver feedback is important. You know, I think there was a tendency. I think it was a generational thing, just to say, just to say that's not good enough. Mm. We really try to couch in a positive and constructive way, and we try to explain. It's not just it's not good enough. You know, go and fix it. Go, go, go and work on the weekend and fix it. It's kind of this can be better if you do the following. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think I think the era I think and it's not that long ago I'm not like hey I'm 60 <laughs> in the 1970s <laughs> I'm talking only 15 years ago but I think things would change even in that period though mm. whereas how you deliver feedback is really constructive and positive mm. I think for me I think the big thing that we want to see though is improvement and people making the effort to get better yeah um and yeah. I, I think the things that I learned was putting in... I mean, we, we when I first got into private practice, I learned quickly that um, you have to do a little bit extra to get better. You, you can't just expect to rock up at 9 o'clock and, you know, go home at mm. 5.05. There's a, there's a period where you've got to roll your sleeves up and work harder, and you would have seen that in your career. Mm. And that that makes you better as well. But when you're not there technically, I think there's a period in your career when you've got to go hard and get better by working harder. So um, those tough periods are good. They strengthen you and make you better. Definitely. uh, Even though you don't like them at the time. Mm, That is a good point, eh? It's always uncomfortable at the time, eh? And then you look back and they're the things that make you better. Yeah. Yeah. So can you run us through, I guess, your move through URPS? You know where you started and how you got to your position now as managing director. When I first got there, I was part of the part of the team. We were about, I think we were about fourteen, mm-hmm. um, 
as a firm at the time and you know I was in a technical role of advising clients writing planning reports lodging DAs for the Zubrinich family at the mm-hmm. Riverland mm-hmm. and getting planning approvals yep um, I had to sort of work hard to get uh, I had kind of a new audience there so there was a bit of trying to impress some new colleagues and some new directors mm-hmm. so I kind of just put my head down and worked really hard in the first uh, 12 to 18 months um, yeah, a couple of years in I think they offered me a, a role to be a director there and, and be a partner there so I bought shares in the business and became a director um, and I became part of the management team um, probably seven or eight years ago now and then the management team decided it was time to refresh its leadership um, so I got I got the opportunity. I think they were looking. It was about trying to refresh and get someone a bit younger in that in that role. Mm-hmm. So I got the opportunity to become managing director. Uh, I think it was four years ago now. Mm-hmm. And we've done a lot in that period in terms of growth of the business. So I said that when I got there, we were about fourteen, and we're thirty. We're thirty five now with offices in Adelaide and Melbourne. Yeah, sick. You know, you, your roles change from, like you said, the more technical yeah. to now. I guess now you're more looking at a more um, holistic business. Yeah. Sort of. Are you still in, you know, in the trenches as well, doing the tech stuff? Can yeah, you still afford to do that? Or yeah, there's a balance for me. Um, I've got clients who I've, I still work with, who I've worked with for a long time, and I stay involved in their projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got, um, I've got management duties. So I dance between the two. Mm-hmm. The tricky thing, Matt, is um, trying to trying to stay across a growing client base, whom have you know come to URPS and in some instances have come to me to do the work. Yeah. But I can't do all the work. So we've been really good, I think, as a firm, and we've been I wouldn't say lucky because it's been targeted, but we've recruited the right people. So I'm able to then. You know, kind of go, well, I can't do this, you can do it. And then once clients build connectivity with your team members and they like them, mm. you don't become as important and they and you can then grow your firm that way. So we've been, I think recruitment's been a, a strength of our firm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, staying involved a little bit, but not on every single project anymore, just mm. managing it through, you know, good delegation and good recruitment. How are you seeing the pipeline of people you know that you are available at the moment for you guys? Because I mean, in our everyone, I think is is tough out there. And I do have a question later around um, you know how you guys have done so well around recruiting. But before we get to that point, wh- yeah. what is it like? What's the pool of people coming through? Yeah, like it's in hard. the world. There's so the planning degree in, in South Australia hasn't been operating I think for a couple of years now maybe two or three years Uh, there's a pathway through Adelaide Uni but the traditional undergraduate through University of South Australia um, isn't offered at the moment so Mm -hmm. we were getting you know 15 to 20 grads coming out of UniSA every year and that had happened I think since maybe mid 70s or something like that so to not have that has meant that we've had to look elsewhere including Victoria for some of our more recent recruits yep um, so being a little bit creative with recruitment, um, I'm hopeful that the merger, that mm. the mooted university merger mm-hmm. will bring a planning degree, which is a portfolio that sits in the government, um, 
and, and clearly important part of the state government's agenda. I'm, I'm hopeful that the merger will bring planning uh, back online as a course that's offered here. Yep. And then we can start getting some recruits. Yep. It's also about, I think, education as well. Like, is planning sold well to high school kids? Mm. So people that are going, I'm going to go on engineering, I'm going to go architecture, I want to get into construction. There's, there's a lot of people moving into those or su- land surveying. Is there enough people going, actually, I might do planning out of that pool of people in mm. the kind of family of, you know, landscape architecture. There's all these graduates doing similar things are enough going into planning. So I think there might be some work to do around whether the planning institute is selling planning to high school kids enough. Mm. If um, you were to, if you were talking, if, say, if, if a high school kid or is watching this like yeah. what do you what do you think is the w- wicked parts about planning yeah um it's interesting because i think i think it's very it flies under the radar a little bit mm. the the most exciting thing that we get to do is deal with a variety of people and see a variety of things so as a planner you can literally wake up one morning and be dealing with a developer about a 15 story hotel in the city mm. Or you can be driving to Morgan to help someone get an approval for a shack. Yep. Or you could be flying to Coobapedi to be doing a land division. Or you could be going to Mount Gambier to deal with, you know, some other kind of regional development. Or mm. working in wine regions with tourism operators. I'm helping Pizza Teca do more work down at McLaren Vale. We get involved and understand so many different businesses and development outcomes. So the variety of things you get to see and do is I think it's an awesome thing about planning. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, variety, that's key. Biggest, bi- so you became director four years ago, a director four years ago? Is that, is that uh, right? Roughly? About seven, managing director four years ago. Managing director four years, okay. Yeah. So this might be hard to answer, but can you summarise some of the biggest business lessons you've had over that time that's helped you level up to where you are now biggest business lessons um hard to think of on the spot sometimes i know but yeah i think um probably um i I think we've gotten better at, at recruitment i think we've i think we've been really good as a firm but i think we've learned now i think we know what an employee a good employee for urps looks like Mm -hmm. and it goes just it goes beyond technical skills i think we go there's technical skills there's kind of interpersonal skills but there's also kind of company values and fit for our culture Mm -hmm. and i think in the past we've been we've been okay at that but i think now i think we're clear about what we want yeah because i think we know what we are more than ever Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the big things that I've learned is actually working on your company values, like being super clear about why Plumify is different to your competitor mm. is one of the biggest things that you could do for your business. Mm-hmm. And then having a clear plan for your growth. So clarity internally and then execution. You have to have a clear plan for what you want to be. You've got to know who you are in the first place. So. Yep. I think we know that more than ever because we spent a lot of time thinking about it and talking about it. That helps with your recruitment because you know what you're looking for mm. um, and you become quite targeted with your recruitment. Yep. Can you touch on those values? Uh, we've got four values. Um, 
I won't explain all of them in detail. I think mm-hmm. the biggest ones for us is we're relationship builders. So we, we work, work, work really hard. You could sort of scratch that into a DJ <laughs> there, on strong relationships internally and externally. Um, we work hard to build strong rapport with stakeholders in government. So when we've got an issue, uh, we can pick up the phone and we can communicate our position professionally and hopefully productively. Mm-hmm. Um, we also talk about turning towards the community, not away from it. So when, when we're doing a development and we get public objections, our approach will be, let's talk to the neighbours, let's contact them, let's sit down, let's see if we can resolve this to then facilitate a quicker approval, but hopefully some degree of harmony between mm-hmm. landowners. Mm-hmm. We think it's a better planning outcome, but it does require you to be brave to talk to them and see if there's a middle ground. Yep. So it's, that's another corporate value of ours as well. And we try to be inclusive as a firm. Um, we accept all backgrounds and we try to recruit to create diversity internally. Mm-hmm. And we've been really targeted at trying to create good inclusive and diverse culture as well. Yeah. well so what's the flip side of you know you're saying you're um con- more consulting with the community um yeah. you said it better um but i mean what is what how does that how would the a usual well, what's the what's the what's negative the side of that yeah the alternative side of that i, I guess like can... how do other people approach it what they just yeah they don't care obviously and they don't consult and they just keep nah, this is what, what it is, this is what we want, or what's the, the alternative? The alternative is um, um, is you just proceed henceforth and you ignore the noise from anyone that's affected by a development. Mm. Uh, that model, um, th- there can be instances where that model might have merit, but um, I think in it, from our perspective... Why wouldn't you pick up the phone and talk mm. to people? Yeah. Because sometimes things that can be resolved quite easily. Like we had a neighbour who wrote like a five-page representation recently. I won't say where it is. Yeah. About a development. And it had all these things in there. And actually all they wanted to do was talk to someone about the problem. And they wanted a fence paid for. Yeah. And I said, well, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> the fence will cost you know, four grand or something and they wanted a treat. You know, it was sort of like all these little things. Now, if you read the the letter, you would have thought that they wanted to go to war. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. But the simple, the simple outcome of the conversation was that they wanted, you know, a fence and some landscaping. Yeah. So I think from my, now sometimes they won't want to talk to you and that's fine. But the positive thing of talking to them is you might go, geez, that was pretty easy to sort out. Mm. So I think, you know, that's where we say it's always worth doing. So is an, is an important skill as a planner to be, seems like you have to be a good negotiator. I think, the, I think, I think it's helpful if you're a good negotiator. It's, yeah. not, the, it's not a core skill, but it, it's, it's really helpful. Yeah. I think within that, though, being able to communicate with it, like a bunch of different humans is going to be a good thing. Mm. Um, mm. If you kind of know how to be a bit of a chameleon change the personality and adapt to different situations as well that's yep. going to help you think on your feet and find the right way to interact and communicate with different people yeah um could you summarize the core skills of what is a you know 
I mean, not every one of them. It's, thingy, intu- but it's like, intuitive, I think, a little bit. Of a good planner, you know, versus a, I don't know, not so good one. But what is the skill set of the, the I think there's a few have? different ways to do the job. Mm. I think at the core of it, you have to have um, sound comprehension skills. You've got to be able to read policy, interpret what it means, and then write something about it. Yeah. So you've got to, your English has to be good. Mm. If you can understand drawings, that's important. I would say that's pretty, pretty yeah. critical <laughs> because you've got to be able to communicate what's happening on plans yeah. into words. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's understanding legislation, reading plans and communicating uh, in writing, but also verbally. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm. I mean, I think you could apply that to lots of careers, yeah. couldn't you? Yeah. Um, Interpretation. That's actually a, like, that's a skill that not that, not everyone has that skill, man. That's, yeah. you know what I mean? That's a good skill yeah. to have. Yeah, you don't need to be good with tools, though, thankfully. Yeah, well, you wouldn't make it in plumbing, I don't yeah. <laughs> Definitely not. I'll, I'll, I'm going to move on to um, ERPS, URPS yeah. in a minute, sorry. Um, yeah. Can I ask you just a personal right, question? you from our <laughs> Litigation. Yeah, that's right. Can I ask you just a personal question? It's like, because I always, it's, I'm interested to know, yeah. it's like, what, could you say what drives you personally yeah. and maybe professionally as well? Personally driven by the problem solving of business. Like I think that's a problem solving clients issues. I love doing that. I love helping them get what they need. So when you, when you want to do a land development, I always ask you what your objectives are. Mm. I don't, it's not about the planning issues for me. Like they are things that we'll need to deal with, but the core of it is you've got a you've got a situation, whether it's to make money or you want to do a development because you want to leave a legacy in the Riverland or whatever you're doing. I kind of want to understand what people's motivations are mm-hmm. and then help solve the problem. So I love the problem solving. That's really motivating for me. And then I love the problem solving in business. Like okay, our brand needs to be refreshed. What do yep. we want it to be? Uh, we need to, to get more work in this area. How are we going to do it? Yeah, mm. That's a real motivating thing for me, mm. more so than the kind of technical detail of planning. I've mm-hmm. done that for a while. And I still enjoy little bits of that, but the, the things that really get me out of bed is the kind of problem solving and the, the relationships I've got with clients. Yep. Yeah, so, yeah, business is basically just when you're a business managing director, your just job is to solve problems yeah. every day. And that's how I look at it, basically. I guess I'm also motivated by paying for school fees and feeding kids. <laughs> that always is a definite motivation. Um, yeah. Practical reality of earning money and, you know, supporting a family has mm-hmm. come, into, come to effect, so, mm-hmm. yeah. Now, mate, the f- I obviously want to touch on the 40 Under 40 under forty Award, and I guess I want to know what it means to you, and my question around that is, because the, the award is... Um, awarded to people the judges believe are going to be future leaders over a long period and I think they're pretty clear on that and I want to know what that means to you and I guess what you want to achieve what you'd like to achieve over a long period because that's those that award is awarded to those people who they believe are going to be future leaders so what does that mean it's interesting when you frame it that way because um, you know we've been I've been a part of this business for a while and have been in a leadership role for a while. Um, mm-hmm. 
And we've spent a lot of time as a business working hard to get to where we've got to. I, I feel that the award is recognition for me personally, driving positive change at URPS. But I also can't help but think that um, my business partners have been a big factor in me getting the award because it's, it's recognition for what I've done at URPS with mm. tremendous support from my business partners. Um, so they've been really helpful in supporting me. Where, where do I take the opportunity of where I'm at now? What do we do in the future? You know, that's really exciting. We've got plans to keep growing URPS. So um, we want to we want to be bigger than what we are now, but we want to we, we don't just want to be bigger. It's not just about the simple goal of growth. It's mm. about being a better firm. Mm. A big theme for us is about growing our intellectual capacity and becoming a more complete and rounded firm. So... Why is that important in the context of that award? We, I think planning has a great ability to influence the community positively because good development will make communities better. Adelaide is such a great city because it's so livable. Mm-hmm. And it kind of comes down to a few things that we're blessed geographically in terms of our climate and all that stuff. But it was actually planned really well. The town planning of Adelaide was excellent. Mm-hmm. We started with a great framework. So I think it's important for the planners of Adelaide to keep living the values of Colonel Light and ensure that it continues to be a great place to live. So I think for me, it's like, well, we've got this great firm that I'm lucky to be a part of. It's let's increase its influence on Adelaide. Let's make it bigger and let's keep making Adelaide a great place to live. So a lot of that motivation comes down to like what we've got as an awesome city. Mm. And I love selling when I go to Melbourne for business. I always sell to people the opportunities to do development back in Adelaide because I think it's good for them to go, you know, let's do some stuff over here. We've got clients from Melbourne that do work in Adelaide now and they can't believe the potential that this city has in terms of growth opportunities and livability. So, Mm, mm. you know, I want to be a leader... um, at URPS, but also a leader that can kind of help keep selling Adelaide beyond South Australia. Yeah, that's a wicked answer, man. Does South Road, in, is South Road included in your answer in regards <laughs> to they planned it really well? <laughs> it's easy to get to McLaren Vale now, so we can't complain about that. It is. You sort of touched on it before that you guys have done, I guess, pretty, well, it seems from the outside looking in pretty exceptionally in regards to the um, recruiting in this really tough labour market. And I guess I wanted to ask you, you know, how do you nurture like, and build up your junior staff yeah. differently to maybe what you used to do or what others do? Like, how does that, how do you, you know, how do you guys look at that? Because obviously that's the future of the growth of the company. Well, a lot of it comes down to that. Yeah. I think culture is a big thing. So, like, people wanting to work at our firm has, hasn't happened overnight. It's mm. about the firm kind of behaving well for a long time. Yeah. If the people at the, at the firm behaved strangely externally, then I don't think people would want to have, come, would have wanted to come and work there in the first place. Mm. So I think a strong thing for any company, right, brand, Katmandu, Plumify, uh, whatever, is you want your team to behave in a certain way so other people go, I kind of want to go there. They seem fun. Mm. They seem good. At, they seem really good at what they do. They love what they do. And they seem fun to be around. Mm. 
I want to be a part of that team. Yep. So I think it starts from what you do. It's not like recruitment works because you just go out and do lots of job ads and pay recruitment companies. Mm. Um, it starts from creating, and URPS did it before I got there. It had a good culture, and we've kept developing it, but it starts from the core being good. And yeah. People going, I really want to go work there. It seems like a great place, great people, mm. passionate about what they do. Yep. That, that's the key. I think that's the key thing. The other things are peripheral but still important. How you sell yourself online, having, a good, having an Instagram, having good LinkedIn content, having a good logo having a nice office all these things are good they kind of add to the desire to go work there yep. the core starts from do, is, do the people care about the work that they do and do they like working there mm. and are they passionate and energised about being together as a firm because that will create an infectious culture that people will just go yeah. yes let's go yep. what can I start tomorrow and that is um, we're, we're trying to do the same thing and I know from experience it's like that sort of thing doesn't happen overnight hey it's a company you constantly got to always be working on is that building the culture yeah it's like a it's like a momentum thing I look yeah. at it as well it's like you start off small and then you can get like a freight train of momentum in a way but it takes constant work it's sort of cha- I think the culture of um, it evolves so like and you're always changing it's always kind of changing a little bit and you go, all right, we're sort of heading in this direction too much. Let's bring it back here. Mm, mm. You've got to keep working on it. it don't, you don't just go, oh, I've got a great culture now. We'll go do something else for 10 years and then come back. And yeah, you know, it's, it needs constant attention. It does. And you spoke about, you just mentioned offices before. Can you guys are moving into the heart of Adelaide. Have I mentioned that we're moving into a new office soon? <laughs> well, I'd like to. I'd like to know, you know, yeah. the reasoning because we had that coffee that day, and yeah, um, you had a. It was really interesting to hear why you really want and thought it was important at this stage of the firm to move more centrally. Yeah, can you explain that? I think the interesting thing as well is between when we first spoke about moving office to now, which was five years ago is there's been a global pandemic and people have stopped going into the office spaces around the world. <laughs> <laughs> so halfway through it, everyone went, why are we doing this? Yep. Don't we want to, like, don't we just want to have URPS as some remote company that everyone just logs onto Teams every Monday and we'll go, all right, see you next week. Yeah. Um, and those discussions were had. I think that hasn't affected us as much here as it has happened in Victoria, for example, and I'm sure other big cities around the world where people are still working from home mm. predominantly. Um, we have a little bit of a guide around people. We try to get people into the office because if I come back to the culture thing, those relationships don't get harnessed as well, in my view, if you're yep. not around people. Yep. It's hard to be connected. You don't get the random conversations you get at a coffee machine if you're not working in the same office together. Mm-hmm. So I think for me it was... I think being in the city is good because it's central. It's a simple geographic decision of, you know, Adelaide's kind of fairly balanced. It's got like suburbs all around this central CBD area. Mm-hmm. So I think geographically it made sense. A lot of our clients are in the city, so it made sense from a marketing perspective. Um, it's environmentally kind of smart because you've got public transport and, you know, better access to, you know, you can take a scooter ride, you can walk yeah. to meetings. 
So we're a firm that talks about the environment, but then if we're in the suburbs and people have to drive there, it just mm. didn't sort of line up okay. with our values. And I think finally it was about, let's get some really nice digs so people like talk about, I want to go work there because they're good people and they're good at what they do. But the office is kind of a bit crappy. Mm. It was like, I don't want the office to be a bit crappy anymore. I want the office to be a part of the picture. It's of a holistic thing, isn't it? The recruitment space is, is, you know, that's a nice place to go and work as well mm. and do business. Mm-hmm. So that was a driver for us. Yep. Yeah. Well, how has that come along as well? Where is We're it moving at? in on the 24th of July. Oh. So we, we did hand over Two weeks, basically. this morning from our builder, Fora. Yeah, um, nice. Shout out. For Nick Dubois. <laughs> Um, has a great how's job. It look? Prosky Architects did a great job. Another shout out. Shout out. Paid for comment. Um, <laughs> it looks exceptional. We're, we're super proud and excited mm-hmm. to show the team. Uh, some of the team have seen some photos, but they'll get in there and hopefully they'll be blown away. Do you have any planning problems getting it through? Uh, fully compliant. <laughs> <laughs> What's the vibe, Kingy? Like, you know, architecturally. Yeah. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, it's kind of like. It's a, it's a contemporary office, but it's it has a warmth to it. So there's like lots of timber and there's carpet areas and yeah. you have to come. Yeah, you know, please. Get the invite. Yeah, I'll day. drop you the USB that you can review and yeah. I'll drop it to the office. Yeah. I've got a question around plant. Uh, like obviously I've got a couple of situational questions around planning I'd like to ask because yeah. um, I'm, I'm interested. So that's sure. why I'm asking them. I'm Go for it. it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to re- yeah, yeah, yeah. read it we'll a just, bit. Uh, We'll, we'll start invoicing from now. <laughs> um, I guess I'd like to understand what what's the process when like an individual or a developer or like a conglomerate of people come to you and they like really want to push the boundaries of what's achievable in building planning and I guess also a policy perspective. And I'd like to understand like how you guys in particular and yourself um, tackle those difficult jobs where you really need to push the boundaries. Yeah. Yeah, good question. Um, Thank you. I I think we are we're always really honest with people about the risk profile. So when when people say I want to put a I want to put a hundred story building on this block, get an approval. I like to say to people, um, you know, sort of facetiously a little bit, but there's more chance of of you kind of winning a million dollars on a roulette table this afternoon than, than that getting approved. Mm, mm-hmm. So I think for me, it's about if you're going to spend lots of money on trying to get a development approved, you need to, un- I need to make them understand what the risks are. I, Cause I don't think there's any value in us just taking money off people and just kind of randomly lodging all these DAs that are not going to get approved. Mm. Um, so we try to be realistic with people about, the risk and and then I think they make the decision then to go okay let's sort of tone it down a bit to a point where we go we can run with that that kind of makes sense to us it's never going to be you don't get us involved when it's you know like a fully compliant um, four by six shed in Modbury on a flat block of land we don't get involved in those things so there's always going to be tricky DAs that we get involved in I think Mm -hmm. yours was yours was under the non-complying yeah. process under the old system you kind of have to get a planner for that stuff because someone has to explain why it's acceptable mm-hmm. most of our jobs have got challenging planning issues when they're too challenging 
and the chance of getting an approval is so slim. Right? People make end up making their own decision not to proceed because I think we're really clear in saying the risks are so great, it's not good use of your money or time pursuing mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And let them make the call. Like I don't I don't think most sensible people go, Yeah, fair enough, let's do something different. Yeah. <laughs> let's go for let's go for ten dwellings instead of five thousand on that block of land. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so um, yeah, when you speak about risk it's ease like essentially talking about the risk of it just being totally um, like rubber stamped as a no or, or having so many different you're gonna modifications enter, that's you're not gonna, even... You're gonna, yeah, you're going to enter this extended kind of negotiation period with the, with the council or the state government to the point where you're going to end up changing it anyway. Mm. So we would say to people the better thing to do is to kind of get it close to an acceptable version at lodgement rather than spending months yep. you know flogging flogging a dead horse so to speak so how important is it I guess you sort of answered it before but I, I guess I'm, I'm guessing from the outside looking in that it's really important for you to have really good relationships with those external stakeholders like the SA government and the council how do you look at that like, yeah are you no, we do always we, we always try to we we try to foster them through respectful interactions and being good professional people mm-hmm. um and it doesn't mean that we don't have robust discussions, though. Yeah, like we don't. They don't agree. Councils and state government won't necessarily agree with everything that we say, and I understand that, you know. But we, it's how we approach it. We focus on the issues, and you know, we'll always do our best to present robust, technically uh, sound planning arguments. If we disagree, that's that will happen sometimes, and we, we'll just you know. Um, we'll communicate that back to our client and find, you know, hopefully find a middle ground. Yep. Um, but, you know, I think you have to just focus on the issues. Mm-hmm. So you sometimes seems like you might have to remove yourself like emotionally from some, I guess, jobs in a way because like emotionally you might be like, mate, this makes total sense. Why can't this go through? But you're also having to balance the fact that you're working on like legislation that yeah. is legislation how do you go about r- removing yourself emotionally from some of these things is that do you yeah. ever have to do that uh, yeah i think so i mean you have to be you have to be professional i think mm. like there's no point there's no point um spitting the dummy if someone doesn't agree with you yeah um the po- the policies in planning are subjective so disagreement is common it's okay. not uncommon it's mm. common because they're flexible policies that you and I could read and interpret slightly differently. Mm. So mm. having a disagreement or not sort of getting them on board straight up, getting a council on board straight away with a development that we lodge mm-hmm. is not uncommon um, when you're in that environment of subjective policy. Yeah, that interpretation, it's like AFL. But like- do you put your feelings... Absolutely, you don't... You keep your feelings out of it as much mm. as you can. Mm. Definitely. Yours, your personal perspective and URPS as well. What's important in, in town planning over the next, say, 20 years from, you know, from a sustainability standpoint? And you know, Where do we need to be better? Well, you go on the big questions now, yeah. aren't you? Yeah, man. Um, We're getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> I, think the, I think planning has a role to play in the housing affordability crisis. But that's challenging. It doesn't it's not just planning that can affect that. 
um, planning has a role to play in providing, in trying to facilitate affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's other factors, there's other government factors in that as well. From a sustainability standpoint, you know, I think public, I think public transport infrastructure um, can be better. You know, I think think of when we grew up in in Modbury. You know, getting around the place, you had the O-Bahn connecting us to the city, mm. but the public transport in that whole Tetra Gully Council area and the connectivity was pretty limited. Yeah, it was inefficient as well. You know, catching multiple buses from mm. places would take a long time mm. to the point where you'd go you know what I'm just going to drive yeah you know I'll just drive from Golden Grove to the city it's easier because I don't want to catch three buses from here to here to here you know mm. so I think you know is the public transport the best it can be you know maybe not I think I think some infrastructure expenditure in that space would be good um, I think increasingly more apartment buildings are a better it's a it's a better living format to reduce our use of the motor vehicle and that's been the trend of the state government has been let's build more apartments so people can Mm. live in the city Mm -hmm. so you can walk to work you can walk to you know the pub after work you can walk home you don't need a car you can live in the city yeah it's probably we're not quite there yet you know, people still live in an apartment and own a car. But if they if they have that lifestyle, they're not driving as much. Mm-hmm. So the move to building apartments was a big move that the government played here, you know, 10 or 15 years ago with rezoning land. Mm-hmm. That will keep happening, I think. There'll be a trend over time in, that, in, in terms of living in that way for South Australians moving forward. Yeah, because it seems like at the same, from my looking at it we are trying to move up and close but also at the same time there is heaps of developments like we are moving further and further out as well how's that balance work like because the two are like opposing ways of looking at it i suppose i think there's still there's still that traditional um desire to live in a in a single story house with Mm. a double garage and you know a backyard and have a barbecue on a Sunday. There's still that living format, and not everyone can afford that in uh, in the current metro Adelaide area. So, mm-hmm. land releases happen, and there's a proportion of society that will want to live in a in a traditional sort of quarter acre block arrangement. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know there's the current state government are saying there's a there's a balance to be struck between the two, and it would seem that there's demand for it. Um, I think, and I think that's okay. I think the key is going, are we rezoning the right land mm. for land development? If the land has, you know, excellent agricultural attributes or is subject to flooding or it's very steep, maybe that land shouldn't be rezoned. So you've got to be, I'm talking really generally yeah, here, yeah. but you have to be really careful about when you rezone land, picking the right sites for, for residential development. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, it would seem that there's still a demand for both apartment living format. I don't think we're. I don't think everyone's embraced living in an apartment in Adelaide yet. Yeah. Do you yeah. know, I think there's going to take. But I th- I think we've started to see a trend of big apartment construction on East Terrace in Adelaide. So people, um, 
downsizing from the bungalow in Tusmore, yep. going, you know what, we, we kind of want an apartment, but we don't want to go into a small apartment. We mm-hmm. want to have all the, you know, the volume and space that we've got in our bungalow in Tusmore in an apartment. So you, we've, we've worked on some really high-end apartments that have got, you know, high floor ceilings, good storage areas, parking spaces in, in a basement car park, um, you know, and kind of two, three, four bedroom apartments with mm. generous living areas. That's a kind of interesting development model, I think, moving forward is offering that higher density living, but some of the attributes that people have enjoyed living in, you mm. know, in Adelaide for yeah. a long time. Like a bit more hybrid. It's like a little bit. It's almost like a house fit. in the air. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Bigger, like big balconies, yep. really big balconies, enough space that you can put a, you know, outdoor dining area barbecue mm-hmm. pot plant you know create a nice environment for people so yeah. i think yeah they've done that really well in in melbourne in particular um and i think we're starting to see a little bit of that kind of high density living but done to a standard where people are going i'm happy to leave the kind of bungalow in tusmore or whatever and move to the city mm-hmm. which is ultimately good for the environment because they can walk everywhere and you then you're reducing the motor vehicle use yeah definitely what you spoke about some of the apartments and that you've just worked on recently well you know these these projects can i'd like to hear just some of the more challenging and rewarding projects that you and urps have worked on yeah are they some notable ones we're working on um you like this one given you're a golfer or an okay golfer No, not very good. <laughs> we're working on the we're working on a major project at the Sterling Golf Course. So we're working with a Melbourne development company, um, and they're developing a hotel, uh, day spa, tourist cabin, restaurant, the whole package yeah, nice. resort facility. Um, it will be rebranded as the Mount Lofty Golf Resort, and it's going to be an awesome development. It's currently. Um, uh, currently going through planning it's a, it's been designated as a major project mm-hmm. um, so that's, that's a really cool project I love golf so I'm really thankful that they came to us it's been a fun project to work on Yeah. Um, but a, a super high profile development we're also working on the aquatic centre development so we're working on the planning on behalf of the state government mm-hmm. massive development um, redeveloping what's there a new facility one that will be enjoyed by South Australians for the next 30 to 50 years mm-hmm. or longer. Um, and we're also working on um, a development for MAB, for, which is a Melbourne developer in Brompton, the Brompton Gasworks site, oh, yeah. um, and a significant infield development there with townhouses and apartments and mm-hmm. activation of heritage spaces and the like. So. Yeah, got some. There, there's some current ones that we're working on. Yep. Um, historically, the firm's done a whole bunch of things. You know, when the thing, the thing for me is, I've actually had the most fun. I've worked on a whole bunch of like apartment buildings, and I got a 13-story apartment building approved in Glenelg yesterday up for a really good client. Um, and those things are great fun. That'll be an awesome project. But I think, for me. I have just as much fun and enjoyment getting that result for, for that client as I do helping out a kind of mum and dad trying mm. to do their dream home in Malvern mm. or Nunley mm. or yeah. whatever they're doing, holiday shack somewhere. So yeah. it's sort of, 
it's exciting and fun and interesting intellectually to work on big projects the relationships and the the interpersonal kind of back and forth that we have with clients on small stuff is where I've always enjoyed at my role as a technical planner and still enjoy that mm-hmm. and that's just my next question a little bit what's um do you still do you get involved much once you know the it's been stamped do you do you go to site and check out the builds and stuff like you that? You know, not a lot. And I think the interesting thing, I was talking about this to someone yesterday, is that there's so many things that we've got planning approval for that never actually get built. Really? Um, which is just the nature of development. Like, it just doesn't always... What We're at the front end mm-hmm. of a very long process. Mm. And after a plan has been endorsed, um, it then has to be costed what's it going to cost to build how, how much revenue we're going to generate from the office space or the apartments yeah. or whatever yeah if that doesn't work then they ha- then our client has to come back to us to go well hang on we need to get two more stories mm. or we need to completely change this whole thing right so kind of so it's not unusual for us to get an outcome and then it kind of comes back because once some of the numbers have been crunched, it has to be yeah. amended. Yeah. Things that have got built though, like I always go and look at them if I can. I think it's good because you can see whether the things that you thought were going to be problems were or not, and you can learn mm. a lot from sort of post-construction site inspection. So mm. I try to do that a lot because otherwise you don't really learn. A lot of what we do is kind of estimating and speculating on the potential effects of a development through drawings. Yeah. Nothing tells you what the reality of the situation is like until you go and look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. So I don't, I don't think I've done that enough historically, but increasingly I, I'm interested in doing that more. There you go. It's an improvement for you. Bang. <laughs> Future plans for herbs. Like I think you sort of touched on it before, but are you guys looking to be the biggest, the best niche, the most sought after? You know, what are you and your business partners' ambitions for the business? Um, that's a good question. I think it's continued growth, um, and it's about growing in size because we think we can. We, we want to keep doing what we do to more people because we think what we do is really good. So mm-hmm. it's about increasing our influence. We think that we can be better as well in lots of areas. So it's kind of. It's physical growth, but also intellectual growth in the firm. So I, I think for us, it's about not just getting bigger and just employing anyone. It's about employing more good people, more great people mm-hmm. to get better at what we do and keep servicing our clients really well. Yep. It's kind of two-pronged. It's not just about expansion. Mm-hmm. We've got, um, I think the other thing I've touched on Melbourne is our Melbourne firm is relatively young and small. So the plans to make that bigger and kind of transpose what we've done here into another city is mm. really exciting. Mm-hmm. The way we, the internal culture that we've got, trying to create something similar over there, the behaviours and values of our consultants and how we service our clients, trying to transpose that to another city and be yep. successful. Yep. Um, I'm really excited about doing that in Melbourne. Melbourne's a great city in terms of doing business it's easy to get to it's quick some of the cultural stuff is similar mm-hmm. you know weather footy coffee yeah 
it's relatable for us. So we've found, and I think we, we share a lot of clients um, in Victoria and Adelaide. So mm-hmm. it kind of, it's been an easier place for us to do business than other cities um, okay. around Australia. Is there any challenges in regards to moving, you know, the business to an, to another state? Like, do you have to, in regards to like licensing or yeah. any of those types how, of things? How long have you got? A bit longer. Because <laughs> I'm interested because I'm, I, that's one of my goals and I just wanted to know what it's like from a, yeah. your business perspective. It's, it, I think starting a business in another city that you've never worked in before is basically like doing an MBA, a crash course in business. <laughs> okay. It's like a free MBA. Yep. It's like, here's a hundred problems that you never thought you were going to deal with before. Go and solve them. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, like it's, it is it is super hard, but that the problem solving of creating, of, of dragging your, this thing that you've got here that's pretty good and then plonking it somewhere else is really hard. So I think we've learned, what we've learned over in Melbourne has been powerful for us in Adelaide. Yeah. Because we kind of know all the things that haven't worked over there and how to do them better here. Mm. Also, Mm. I think the other thing is trying to sell to people that don't know you. It's easier for you to sell your business in Adelaide because you're connected. Yeah. And you know people and you're confident and you, you feel you have a high degree of trust that people will kind of use you because you're, you're known in your industry here. When you go to another city, they don't, they go UPRS, they say your name wrong. Mm. They don't, they kind of don't even know who you are. So you're starting from like you're at ground zero when you go over there and that's hard, but that's the great thing about it is how hard it is. Yeah. It's like, get back and it's on like that starting again. You're like, Oh my God, they don't know who I am. They, yeah. they, said, my, they said my company name wrong. They said yeah. the, you know, UPRS. Yep. That's URPS. Mm. So I think that is good. Because it toughens you up. It, it's like another hurdle to jump mm. and what that does for you and the things that you learn, awesome. You can't, you, you, you'd never regret it. You have to be careful not to invest too much. I think that practically don't throw, you know, good money after bad. If things aren't going well, you, you cut it, you finish it. I yep. think you can't be silly about growth moves. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a delicate balance between kind of learning enjoying the pain of growing in a new city but not if, it, if it's not working just stop after a period of time and move on mm. At, i guess lastly matt what were you involved in the discussions around when you know deciding to move into melbourne what yeah. would that look like, yeah. like what was I, the catalyst to, i think to we i think we had a couple of clients that said can you we've got a da in richmond can you just fly over and yeah <laughs> and lodge a da over there and I think I said, I just say yes. I go, yeah, I can do that. And afterwards, I try and solve the problem. Mm. You mm-hmm. know, that kind of positive mindset with business is you say yes and then you find a Figure way to it do later. it later. Yep. So I said yes. The reality was we didn't have the technical understanding of what happens over there. Mm. So when we were getting these little, can you do this DA? And we were saying yes we were not fully equipped to deal with the technical side. We were okay at it, but we weren't as good as we are here. So then we went, well, let's let's find someone who is mm. on the ground there that we can build a business around. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of the model. And we've had a, a few changes in leadership before we got to our current person. Mm-hmm. 
um, for a variety of different different reasons. Um, but over time, the work that you do going over there in marketing and the brand that you've built here over there starts to get traction. Which is, mm. we've, I, we've got a long way to go, but there's kind of signs of you yeah. know, growth, I guess. Mm. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, mate. Cool. I think we can, that's a good way to end because it's a good lesson for me as well. But, um, appreciate you coming. I know you're busy. Yeah, and, it's been uh, fun. Thank you. Thanks, man. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another White Collar Tradie podcast. Make sure you're following our podcast sponsor, Plumify, on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and check out their website at www.plumify.com.au.